Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peter. And this is episode 115 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 115, we are going to be mostly talking about uh, some questions and ideas and thoughts from a listener email, which is awesome. We love getting listener emails. And so uh, we, and we especially love getting listener emails that challenge any of our prior thinking or prior points on anything. And uh, that is something that we got, which is awesome. So we'll be talking about that. But before we do, I want to go through kind of a recap of the Great West Invitational Tournament that was just a little bit ago. I guess it was a week and a couple of days ago, I guess is when it when it last took place, uh, which was epic and awesome. And then uh, after we walk through the uh, email from a listener, we will talk a little bit about the upcoming meet in PNW, which is District Championships. And that is also going to be extra epic. But before any of this conversation, I, I have a big big announcement. And the big announcement is that as of, I don't know, like an hour ago or something, uh, in addition to the reference material for The Princess Bride being in CBQZ, now CBQZ hosts reference material for, drumroll, Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. So if you are so inclined to write uh, questions for either Princess Bride or Star Wars Episode Four, you can do that in CBQZ. I'm not exactly sure why you would want to do either of those two things other than maybe having some fun practice jump material that is purely fun and doesn't actually do anything of usefulness, but I don't know, whatever. If you want to have some fun, feel free. Those uh, Both those reference materials are publicly available for anybody who has a CBQZ account. And if you do not have a CBQZ account, you can create one for yourself uh, by going to cbqz.org slash app and signing up for one. It's all, you know, free and public and happy and good and that kind of stuff. All right, so let's talk about Great West, uh, the recap of the meet. So um, this was the first time that we have had a great the Great West Invitational in three years. I think uh, the last one that we had in person, Scott, you actually were, it was so long ago, you were actually still district coordinator of PNW and you were leading the charge up into Canada. You were quizmaster in room one, if I recall. Is that right? Um, I think so. Yeah, I know. It's so long ago, right? <laughs> um, I, I think I wasn't, but I took over so that some Western can folks could beat a snowstorm. So I think I, I did like um, HI and finals or something like that. Oh, oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah, I vaguely remember. I was an answer judge in room two or three. I forget. It was, I was in the shed room, which I think, I think the shed room was that year. It was in room two. Uh, and I was an answer judge for Heather. Um, and so I don't, I don't know what happened in, were you, but I thought you were quiz master for most of the meet, weren't you? So I'm trying to remember because there was, I think it was the most recent Great West that I was at. I had Kimmy for my answer judge, and I, I'm. It makes me think that I was in room one the whole time because I have memories of that. So I potentially I was in room one the whole time. But even if I wasn't, I quizmastered the whole meet and then just switched to room one whenever my room closed down. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, uh, so this year, uh, you know, having not 
across the border in three years. And of course, now dealing with the whole, you know, uh, COVID uh, vaccine proof papers. And uh, there's a whole new Canadian system uh, called ArriveCan, where we have to file all, all of our paperwork ahead of time. Uh, which is both cool uh, in the sense that it streamlines the the you know the transit process, but also scary and terrifying because we've never done it before. Uh, but that was all sort of part of the mix. But uh, so the first day we uh, did things a little bit differently than normal. Uh, normally we would depart from ABC Alliance Bible Church in Covington, Washington, and drive to Coeur d'Alene where we'd stay the night. This time we actually departed ABC and uh, drove directly to Sandpoint, which allowed us to kind of, I don't know, cut the corner as it were. So like, uh, if you imagine I-90 from Seattle, it more or less goes due east kind of until it gets to Coeur d'Alene and then you make a 90 degree turn and you go north, um, again, more or less, up to the Canadian border. And then from there, you kind of, you know, wind your way um, through Cranbrook and up through the Canadian Rockies and so forth. But this um, this particular trip, what we did was we drove directly to Sandpoint, Idaho, which is, you know, if you're in Coeur d'Alene, it's like 45 minutes north of uh, Coeur d'Alene. Uh, so not too much further. But as a result, what that meant was we were able to kind of cut that corner at a 45 degree angle. We got to Spokane and then very quickly, uh, like almost before we left Spokane, we were actually on these side roads that kind of took us in this 45 degree angle off towards Sandpoint, which was weird, um, but also cool because it allowed us to cut a good chunk of time off. Uh, total transit to Sandpoint took a little bit longer than trans what transit would have taken to Coeur d'Alene. But then, of course, we don't have that 45 minutes uh, that, you know, the next day. So... We arrived at Sandpoint, uh, relaxed at the beachfront park, which is just ridiculously gorgeous. They have a, uh, just like Coeur d'Alene, they have a, a massive lake uh, that uh, that offers some spectacular views. And we got to uh, view the lake and the snow-covered mountains in the distance. And uh, we had dinner at a restaurant. Uh, that was right next to the park that was kind of overlooking the park and the beach and the mountains. Uh, and it was just, we, we sat out on a patio. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was like low seventies, you know, in terms of temperature, it was just absolutely awesome. And then went off to the uh, nearby hotel. Um, it had a pool table and there were a couple of, uh, pool, pool table tournaments that were, you know, uh, hastily constructed that evening. And then the border crossing the ne next day, despite all of my angst and ulcers, uh, was relatively uneventful. Uh, you know, we the, the, the Canadians have this new Arrive Can uh, app that you know is, it was a website and an F, an app on your phone, and I've got got everybody's paperwork all uploaded ahead of time, and so I just submitted the our crossing and scheduled our crossing time, showed up to the border, and said, "Here's our receipt." And it was a little bit of a problem because I could only actually schedule up to eight people at a time, so. We had to do that and then go into the desk to to pick, uh, pick up the remaining uh, folks in the in the transit uh, to get across. But it was relatively smooth and as usual, the Canadian uh, border people were polite and professional and friendly, 
And it turns out they inadvertently lost uh, a birth birth certificate. One of the quizzers realized as we were starting to drive away, oh, wait a minute, I don't have my birth certificate. So we had to go back in and say, hey, could you check and see if it just maybe fell on the floor in one of the booths or something? And one of the border uh, agents went over and looked and sure enough, like, yep, here it is. Sorry about that. We're like, cool, no problem. And off we went. So it was actually quite pleasant and uneventful despite all of my sort of self-imposed stress for the event but crow's nest itself i I should mention before after after the border before crow's nest we stopped off at cranbrook in our usual place to uh, get lunch Um, we did not go to tim horton's uh, but instead uh, folks sort of scattered for fast food and then it turns out that every single one of us decided to go to starbucks right before we got back on board and it was kind of interesting I, i walked into starbucks and i started doing a head count i was like oh everyone's here. Cool. All right. So we, we walked back to our vehicles from, from Starbucks at that point. So Crow's Nest itself was great. Um, it was very cold, colder than, uh, the three years ago. In fact, uh, there was snow, but of course we were expecting snow, but then the next morning, uh, Saturday morning, we actually had a decent chunk of snow. I mean, it was a, I don't know, I forget exactly, but like a couple inches uh, or so all over the camp. So, I mean, it was actually a fairly significant amount of snow, which, of course, meant mud, which, of course, meant, you know, you have to be really careful about where you're tracking your feet uh, when you're walking from from place to place and so forth. I had the honor and privilege of being a quiz master in room two, which was uh, in the basement of... um, one of the buildings that they have there was really a pretty nice room. Uh, it was uh, cozy and warm and uh, yeah, uh, generally a, a good thing. I had a fantastic set of officials on uh, at my table. My answer judge was awesome. My scorekeeper was awesome. They were both extremely capable, knew their stuff. Um, it was, it was an extremely, it was great to quiz master in that room. Cause I, I mean, we had fun, we joked, we laughed, we were professional and, uh, yeah, my answer judge, my scorekeeper, they both knew their stuff and it was, it's just, it's so refreshing and wonderful to, when you go to meets like this, when you're, you're not really sure, sure who, who you're going to be paired with. It's really, really nice after you go through a quiz or two and you're like, okay, cool. I'm actually surrounded by people who are taking it seriously, who really know their stuff. Like, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I was, I was a big fan of my, my table staff, uh, P and W we did well. Uh, we, uh, we didn't uh, place in the top three this year, but that's okay. Uh, we did place in the upper half of the pack or so, and, uh, we did represent P and A or uh, P and W teams represented P and W very well there. And, uh, and a, a great amount of fun was had by all. Uh, and then Saturday night, of course, uh, is the quote-unquote all-nighter, which I guess doesn't really actually go all night. Uh, in this case, I think folks were staying up till about 2.30 is what I heard before they came back and went to sleep, which was interesting because, of course, the next morning, Sunday morning comes around and, uh, you know, I wake up and I'm getting a few other folks up and Andrew was my... Uh, co-adult in the uh, other room uh, in, in part of our dorm area. And so both of us were up and we were both trying to get the, some quizzers up. And most quizzers were getting up and moving pretty slowly, but there were some who didn't wake up at all and took a lot of, of shaking to finally get them awake. Um, so there was definitely 
some lack of sleep uh, taking place. Uh, we drove back Sunday after breakfast. Um, U.S. Border uh, Patrol, or, uh, is it Border Patrol or Customs? Whoever it is at the border that uh, that you have to talk to going across the border again into the U.S., they were grumpy as usual, but, I don't know, seemed a little bit less grumpy than years past. But, I mean, obviously they're still... They're still, you know, compare and contrast U.S. versus Canadian. The Canadians are nice. The U.S. guys are grumpy. It's just the way it works. But anyway, and then we had um, snowstorms. That was really the the kind of the interesting bit as we were descending. So we got through Cranbrook and the weather was not too bad. But from Cranbrook, like south of Cranbrook, there's the, the road starts to descend a bit as you get down toward the border. And as we were descending, the snow actually got like worse. Um, it, it, it was a fairly decent, uh, snow, uh, coming in a good inch or two on the roads, uh, kind of thing. And it was kind of like, Ooh, this is interesting. As we were, uh, getting down there, by the time we got back to Sandpoint, Idaho, the, the sun was out, it was reasonably warm, uh, decent weather, uh, you know, kind of stuff. But of course we're watching, uh, Snoqualmie pass with great, uh, you know, constipation and ulcers and fear and so forth. Uh, cause it was, uh, there was massive backups and a snowstorm coming through the pass. And we encountered some very interesting, I mean, very weird middle of April, right? We encountered snowstorms just to the West of, um, uh, Spokane. So like basically between Spokane and Ritzville, we encountered some non-trivial snow and hail and, that's really weird for the middle of April. And so I was terrified what the passes were, uh, were going to do. Craig and I were chatting at one point about, well, you know, let's keep going, see how far we can go. But, you know, maybe we get stuck and we have to stay overnight at double K up in Easton or, or, you know, Clay Elm or something like that. Or do we get to Ellensburg and then make a hard left and go down to Oregon and then cut up, uh, on I-5 and, you know, get back home at like three in the morning or something like that. So like, like all of these things were, you know, dancing around in our minds. Fortunately, uh, we were able to get over the pass just fine. It turns out that by the time we got there, the snowstorm had passed over. Most of the snow had melted. There was a huge backup of cars, but the, the, the pass itself was basically just uh, wet, no ice, uh, no snow. And actually we had sn uh, sun breaks at a particular time. So ultimately, despite all of the car backups, we actually got back uh, in in relatively good time. I think we got back like around eight or, or no, it was after eight, 8.30. I forget exactly when we got back, but it was seemed like we make it seemed like we uh, made really good time. And of course, fun was had by all. So, uh, and of course you got to imagine, you know, if you're a quizzer, you know, I'm talking about this from a sort of an official's leadership perspective. The quizzers just had fun the entire time. You know, there 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 were sing-along things. There was a Disney sing-along event at one point. There was a theology discussion. There were, you know, study times on the way up. There, I think, I don't think anybody ever slept on the way back. So <laughs> I think some quizzers were absolutely wretchedly tired by the time they finally got home. But good times were had by all. So... It is definitely a really fun event. So I encourage anybody who is contemplating attempting to make a run for Great West next year to study. Uh, Axe is up for next year. Uh, so never never a terrible idea to get a little bit of a head start on Axe over the summer. Don't burn yourself out. 
but uh, get a little bit of head, head start on Axe over the summer. Maintain as best you can throughout the course of the quiz season, and maybe you can qualify for Great West. It is, it is an enormously uh, awesome and fun uh, sort of thing. All right, so with all that said, let's uh, flip over to an email. So we got a listener email com- uh, coming from Luke, who is a retired quizzer who's turned uh, kind of coach and quiz master uh, from CMD. And it's awesome to uh, get these sorts of emails. Uh, Scott, do you want to kind of jump in here and uh, pick up uh, Luke's first couple of topics and we can dive into this? Yeah. So we discussed an idea on the last podcast, number 114. And I brought, I think I've brought this up a few times, but it was um, at any meet, but I think I was talking specifically about internationals, eliminating a quizzer who hits some extreme criteria. Um, and what I brought up was at least 10 one jumps and um, lower than 20% accuracy. And Luke had some thoughts on this. Um, the first one was team versus individual focus. Teams at internationals would have to keep track of their um, each of their quizzers' accuracy and adjust to that instead of focusing purely on the success of the team. This would be particularly apparent in elimination quizzes due to the faster jumping speed. I'm not sure if you meant for this to be a policy affecting prelims only. I just made that assumption. Um, that is true. Um, I think that I would want it only applicable to prelims, but I don't know that I feel strongly about that, so it's a very fair assumption of Luke to make because I didn't specify at all. Um, I don't know that adding in an individual focus as he calls it is a bad thing because right now you have to track which of the quizzers on your team have a question correct in the quiz or have an error so that you can strategize subs or who jumps um, at the end of the quiz for a third person bonus so I guess that would also be an individual focus and I don't think that there's anything necessarily bad about that yeah I mean I totally agree with what Luke is saying here Um, and I don't know that it's a bad thing. I actually think it's kind of a good thing. Um, I mean, because what we're talking about here is not like something where we want to try to punish quizzers, but we're trying to tap down the, the, the quizzers who seem to like air out like every other quiz. Like, like it's, it's just this, and it's not even just airing out. That's the problem. Cause I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to try to slow somebody down to the point where they're not getting questions. And I, and I definitely think there's, there's a, you, you must risk a certain number of errors to, to be able to maximize your overall uh, individual score, not just for the individual score's sake, but for the value that that individual score brings to the team. Right. Um, I just, the problem is, I don't know, maybe we're overthinking this, not overthinking. That's not, that's not the right word. There's already an incentive not to err so massively because ultimately you won't do well, right? It, 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 so if you're a coach and you've got a quizzer who's erring so much that it actually would trigger this threshold that Scott's talking about, right? Um, less than 20%, um, you know, accuracy or something like that is way up there, right? So it's a very, very high threshold to, to, to hit. If you've got a quizzer who's getting there, the coach needs to throttle back that quizzer because that quizzer is 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 actively hurting your team, right? Um, and it's not just like a one-off event; it's like a systemic problem. You need to work with that quizzer rapidly because you're you're tanking your team uh, in that environment. The problem that we have at internationals is that it that 
Quizzer is actually negatively impacting the other teams, not just their own team. And that's where this rule is is sort of the, the inspiration of this rule comes from is the idea to protect the other teams from crazy bad quizzing, right? Right. I just pulled up the 2020 stats, I think. Um, and it looks like 41 of the 75 quizzers won at, le- won at least 10 jumps. And um, I, it's never good to do it live, but let me do it live and see for the quizzers that won at least 10 jumps, how many of them, like who had, who had the lowest accuracy? Let's see here. One quizzer. 2020, one quizzer won 11 jumps at an 18% accuracy. The next closest was at 21%. So this would have affected one quizzer at 2020 internationals, and they probably would have, I am assuming they would have, as I'm terming it, airing out of a quiz, they would have aired out late in prelims. Yeah, right. Um, I guess this is over seven quizzes, though, um, and usually internationals is 12. So... Um, perhaps a greater percentage than 41 out of 75 would win 10 jumps over 12 prelims. Yeah. But I think well, let's, you're, you're, let's move on. You're, to, you're, you're right. Go ahead. Go ahead. It's I'm not, I'm not wanting to create in like more work for a team to track of their own quizzers, but I'm wanting to protect all of the opponents from really it's um, jumping without trying to actually have it benefit their own team. Right. Um, and I don't know what those what those thresholds are, right? Maybe it's twenty jumps and fifteen percent accuracy, <laughs> um, but it should affect a small amount. But it should be like what what is the threshold at which um, we think it's negative for other teams? And it could be that there is a better way to to attack this because for the most part, there's nothing that um, is additive across quizzes. Um, right. The only thing is team score. Right, but there's nothing else um, that anybody has to track across quizzes, and hmm, it, it might be nice to keep it that way. Yeah, it could be. So the next bullet that Luke brought up was unbalanced prelims. So it's impossible to get ten errors on your first quiz, but it can definitely happen over the course of the rest of your team's prelims. Um, and if your quizzer is in danger of crossing this threshold and airing out of a meet, then that team would be very hesitant to have that quizzer jump at a fast at that same faster pace due to the likelihood of the marrying which by the way is exactly what i want um but he said this is a problem because the opposing teams can take advantage of this and gain more points against that team than other opponents of this team did earlier in the meet basically saying if you're a team that faces this team when when they have a quizzer who's in danger of crossing this threshold you have an easier time I think that's absolutely true, and as much as possible, I do want to avoid that, right? So I think that that is a con of this. Now, this is not to discredit this con, but this already exists in that if I'm at internationals, there are 12 prelims, 11 of them are done, and I am 10 points out of the ninth spot, well, I'm going to try to win 15 jumps in my 12th prelim. I'm going to adopt a strategy that I have not adopted for the first 11 because of um, things that I now know, now that 11 prelims are done, that all the 22 teams that have faced me thus far did not have to deal with, right? And now that reality doesn't mean that we should add more of the same reality, but it does already exist. And I think there are ways that we've decided that we either can't get away from it or are fine with it. Right, yeah. I mean, obviously, I I totally agree with Luke, what Luke's saying here on point two. And 
Yeah, I agree it's a problem. I don't know that we don't have this problem already, just like what you're talking about. I will say I think the problem, this is going to sound really harsh. I think the proposed rule that you're, and I mean, it's not really even a proposed rule. It's more a proposed theory. It's sort of a proto rule at this point, right? It hasn't even matured enough to become an actual rule proposal. But the proto proposal ultimately fixes a problem. And by fixing that problem, you inherently have unfair an unfair situation because prior to the problem being fixed, those teams are affected. And after the problem is fixed, you, the, the teams that, you know, face that team don't have a negative. Right. So, I mean, that's, that's where it gets, it becomes very tricky and I can imagine ways, and this is all really a thought experiment. I don't think this would ever actually become a real rule, but, you know, following along the thought experiment, Ideally, you would want to have something sort of like a growing level of airing out earlier versus later or something. I'm not sure how you would do that. So, so like, you know, let's say in quiz one, a quizzer airs out, then in quiz two, they would, let's say they, they would air out after two airs instead of three, unless, and then in quiz three, if they didn't air out in quiz two, then it, then it resets or something, right? Like, like something oh. to, you know, make, which, which the level of complexity is, you know, <laughs> pretty intense, pretty quickly. Right. But the idea of saying like, it's a throttle, because I mean, ideally what we want is we want positive behavior. Like we don't want to prevent anybody from quizzing. We just want to prevent behavior that actually actively hurts other teams unfairly. Right. Now, and the idea that you're proposing there is very similar to what they do in soccer, where if you have two consecutive yellow cards, it acts like a red card where you cannot compete in the third match. Right. Uh, well, it kind of acts like a red card. Your team gets 11 um, players on the pitch. But um, I think a couple things to highlight, though, is it could be that this is a complete fool's errand because the teams that um, like usually at internationals, there is a team that averages between two and four points a quiz um, with usually a low accuracy. And they usually win a fair amount of jumps. And really, there's no amount of changing the points or the penalties that is really going to incentivize that team to jump differently. Because if your material knowledge is just that much lower than everybody else, um, you just have to try to win a bunch of jumps, you know, like no amount of penalties is going to convince you to like, well, maybe we should jump slower and win no jumps, you know? (laughs) Right. Right. And so like, maybe that's a fool's errand. But when I look at internationals, um, it's less of a problem because if you average 10 points a quiz, you will make top nine more years than you don't. I think the the average number of points per quiz for the ninth place team is about 9.7 or 9.5. And so if another team is jumping very imprudently and making a lot of errors, um, as long as you win the quiz, you will get 10 points, even if you have a very low raw score. And so I think... Um, that makes it palatable at internationals. But in, say, a district, I remember PNW 
we have six prelims, it might take 14 or 15 points a quiz to make top nine. Um, and if you face a team that is just willing to air a bunch in your prelim, they can completely ruin your chances of making top nine. If you put up a five, six, seven point quiz, then instead of having to average 14 or 15 a quiz, you have to average like 19 to 21 for, for your other five. Um, and to me, that's where there's a much bigger potential impact from a team really torpedoing the competition. Yeah. So like taking our idea here, is it better to solve this with more prelim quizzes and just have lots and lots of prelim quizzes? Um, yes, yes. Because, um, I think the reason I put so much emphasis on internationals is the difference in strength between the top team and the ninth team is relatively small compared to the difference in strength between the top team and the ninth team in any district quiz. And so just crossing that threshold of being in the top nine is a big deal. I think 12 prelims means that over the course of prelims, even if there are things that are unfair or unlucky or you face one of these torpedo teams, you will end up very close to your true placement. Um, But that might be plus or minus two spots or something, which if you are actually the ninth best team, but because of some things outside of your control, you ended up 11th, the, the negative impact to you is enormous, just enormous. Because I, I, would, I would guess that even the ninth-placed qualifying team um, at internationals into the final nine bracket has at least a 5% chance of winning it all, um, which is a very non-trivial percentage. These are all just numbers I'm throwing out that could be hilariously incorrect. You know? But I think that's why I want to like put every, every possible thing in place so that the true ranking of teams does come through. That's why I hate XYZs. I think that's something that contributes to the untrue ranking of teams happening. Um, but anyway, I guess those are a, a, a few more um, pictures of my motivations behind it. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, another idea from Luke was that, well, everyone faces the same teams. So if that's the case, then everyone has to deal with it. So it's all equal, even if it is slightly unfortunate or unfortunate for every team that faces a team right um and then he says of course like when you face them matters at the beginning or the end and maybe they slow change their pace but i think that that definitely mitigates a lot of it but one thing is unfortunately you cannot guarantee that at internationals every team faces every other team the same amount of times right some team might face this team twice um and some teams may not potentially if there's fewer than 24 teams i don't know what the number is um you may not be able to have you face every other team in prelims um and so there's just a lot of variables like that that yeah if you could ensure that every team faces every other team exactly once then boy so much of this goes out the window Right, right, indeed. Well, and I mean, the the flip side of this is I was talking about like, well, you can solve this by just having ever more numbers of prelims, right? So uh, maybe you're quizzing for four days of prelims to be able to get enough in so that it it evens this sort of thing out. Uh, But then you run the risk of like, well, now internationals is, you know, seven weeks long. And by the time you actually flip from prelims into brackets, like the quizzers are completely worn out, wasted, destroyed, uh, and thus it, it alters brackets. Now, that may be true, but maybe that's not a bad thing. So, you know, yeah, you don't want to completely 
wear out the quizzers, but the quizzers would be worn out equally, right? Fairly. And then if a team had a coach who worked with their quizzers to help them, you know, with their energy management state over the course of the several days that internationals was happening, that would be that energy management would be a distinct advantage for that team. And that seems to me like a good idea. So I don't know. I mean, it's, it's kind of the question of like, how many prelims can you pack into internationals, but yet still maintain opportunities for rest recovery and fellowship? Cause I mean, as much as we love quizzing, as as much as we want quizzers to quiz more, there is a balance there where it's like, okay, yeah, you, you are quizzing, but you also want to have opportunities for the quizzers to hang out with each other and to fellowship and to build friendships and all of those kind of good social relationship things that are really, really positive uh, encouragers for memorization at the internationals level. You You don't want to blitz out say your prelims and destroy that aspect of quizzing at the same time. So yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a balancing act. Right. And if you look at the current, like uh, most common structured internationals, you have 12 prelims and then you have a final nine bracket. Um, And it can definitely feel that I put in all of this work over 12 prelims. And then if I take two thirds um, or a third and then either a second or a third, I'm eliminated. Right. And that's happened to teams that I've coached. Um, and it doesn't feel great. You're like, oh, I put in all of this good work and it can be undone so very quickly. But I would rather have it that way than have six prelims and then some sort of triple elimination bracket thing. Because um, I want the knowledge that um, I had as fair and as, um, I guess, as enough data to give myself a chance to be in that top nine. And then, hey, if there's... A good amount of variance there, I'm more willing to live with it than if the variance resulted in me not making the top nine when I was a top nine team. What would you say to the idea of, I mean, there's just this, I'm, I, I don't have the data in front of me and I'm just making this up as I go along here. So bear with me, but what would you say to the idea of eliminating prelims and having a, I don't know, quadruple quintuple elimination bracket that included all teams out of the gate? Um, That would be potentially interesting, but um, I don't know. Maybe this is contradicting myself, but I think that there's value in having everybody quiz everybody if you can have it because it's districts getting to meet each other and see each other. And potentially in some sort of quadruple or quintuple elimination bracket, you may not get that opportunity, right? Because from the get-go, teams might be kind of starting to seed themselves into certain parts of the bracket. Um, so, I don't know. I, I, I really, like, given the current constraints of, what is it, three days of quizzing, I think that the current 12 prelim with a final nine bracket is perfect. Um, and if you can squeeze in quizzes A, B, and C in the bracket being cumulative team points over two, I think that that, and eliminate XYZs, um, I think that that would be almost like my ideal. So, but back on Luke's email, he has more points. He had a couple questions. What do you think of increasing team jumping penalties instead of individual ones? Say, for example, you increase the penalty to negative 20 on the team's fifth or sixth error. And then he adds, this would also make the theoretical lowest quiz score even lower. Um, I think that this this is probably the most palatable way to go about it. 
right? Because I don't, I don't necessarily need to punish the individual to the point that they are eliminated from the quiz meet. I just think that if there isn't an individual winning tons of jumps with such a low accuracy, that might be the easy, like removing them from the quiz meet at a certain point would, might be the easiest solution. But if you create enough disincentives as a single quiz goes on for a team to continue airing, right? Like maybe, as Luke says, the fifth penalty is negative 20, but maybe it goes up by negative 10 for every single one after that or something, right? Where the sixth there is negative 30 and the seventh is negative 40. Um, where you're really, you're focusing on the long tail of what happens. Um, you're, you're not wanting this to get invoked often if you can help it. Um, but I think that that would be a really solid way to go about it, where at some larger number of total team errors, their penalty of erring increases. Yeah, I mean, I'm generally I generally like Luke's suggestion here. I think it's it's generally a good idea. And again, not thinking this through and just thinking off the fly here. What if we had a system? Because ultimately, what are we trying to do? We're trying to reduce, if not eliminate, the harm an exceptionally negatively scoring team does to the two other teams that are that are trying to be strategically reasonable, right? So what if we did that in, you know, I, I, I like the idea of, of added team penalties on the fifth and sixth error, just like, like what Luke's, Luke's suggesting here. But let's say a team goes negative. What if in the final analysis when the quiz is over, uh, instead of calculating points exactly the way we do now, we actually say any negative scores are zeroed and that delta is added to any positive scores. Um, you mean if they like get negative 40 in a quiz, negative yeah. four team points or something are applied to their running team points total? No, 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 no. So let's say, let's say there's teams A, B, and C, and let's say team A gets a negative 40, uh, team B gets a 40. Oh, I see. Team C, you know, and, and team C gets a, a 60. Well, ultimately team C wins, but let's say you bump them up to a hundred, right? Now, granted in that universe, it's not going to make any difference in terms of points for the team, but let's say that team got, you know, 80 points or something like that. It's like, okay, well now they're getting an extra point out of, out of the factor, right? So, I mean, it, it kind of, cause ultimately what, what's the issue here? The issue is that first place team doesn't earn as many points as they would have because of what was happening on the a team right um and so in this way you're right. sort of zeroing that out to some degree i i actually really like that because then you don't have to mess with any of the current structure and anything but it does bump up your competitors if the other team goes goes negative um and you could even say if you know anything under 20 um you you true it up to that number interesting um because i think yeah the point is if if one team wins eight jumps and at the speed that they win those eight jumps, they have um, a 10% chance of getting them right. <laughs> but if any of the other two teams had won those jumps at the exact same speed, they would have had a 50% chance of getting them right. Well, the team that has a 10% chance is kind of stealing that opportunity from the other team. Um, now, now that I'm saying that out loud, it sounds bad. Because why? why do we want to remove the freedom of a team to do something that hurts themselves. Um, but it's because it, it doesn't solely hurt them. 
Right. And that's really what it is. That's really what it comes down to. If there was a way for people to err that didn't actually hurt other teams, I wouldn't care. So another way to solve this, uh, another very, very simple way to solve it is change absolutely nothing, but start A's and B's on question one. Now, I mean, that totally has the potential of blowing up the time it takes to complete a quiz, right? Um, so, I mean, you could, you could end up with a 45 minute quiz or, or longer or something like that. And so then of course the schedule goes wackadoodle, uh, at that point, because, you know, if, if one room, a room in a quiz meet is never just a room, it's just one organ in the body of the entire quiz, right? So if one organ starts to fail, then all the rooms get pulled down with it. Um, and so that's kind of a negative, but at a theoretical level, like if you started A's and B's on question one, it wouldn't matter at all if there was a team that just started tanking questions. It's like, well, okay, you're only hurting yourself. It's fine, right? Yeah, that's that's another good way to do it. And you could also tweak it and say that we'll start going to A's and B's when that team hits their third or fifth team total team error. Um, yeah, that one I'm less kosher with. I mean, I like the thought behind it, but the problem is then it's inconsistent between rooms and other other teams, right? In terms of opportunity, right? Um, sure, but it's already that way, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This team can go out fast and actually get the first four right, and then just by pure luck, and then in other quizzes they get the first four wrong, and it goes to immediately days and B's, or goes later. To, you know, like. There's enough variance there already that I don't think this introduces additional undue variance. Sure. But I mean, there's a, I mean, realistically, it's easier to win a jump and thereby get a question correct in a toss up than a, than a standard all three teams in. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, but you know, if there's, if there's a team that's tanking, then you have as the non tanking team, you have an advantage over a team that's competing against two other teams, neither of which are tanking. Correct. Yeah. Um, right. So, yeah, I think there are definitely cons of all of the ideas that we've come up with, but you have to decide if the gain is worth it, right? Because yeah, a, yeah. a pro is gained as well. Um, and then Luke's last question is, um, actually, are we? it's un, an unrelated question. So are we, do you think we've talked this one to death? Probably. I mean, it's a, it's a, and I mean, sort of the bottom line this, I mean, I don't like making rules for the exceptional cases, right? This is definitely an exceptional case. This is like a, you know, one or two quizzers meet this level of, you know, situation, uh, not every year. Right. So, I mean, this is a really edge casey sort of situation and i and i'm generally resistant to the idea of creating rules on edge cases because generally speaking anytime that you create a rule there's ripple effects to that rule and there's unintended consequences to that rule even if you think very very carefully about those unintended unintended consequences and so i'm i am I am, I like making new rules, but I'm also extremely cautious about the unintended, you know, unforeseen consequences of those rules. And so part of me tries to think, well, yeah, we've come up with some ideas, but is there a softer way of, of dealing with this? And I mean, and really the right way to handle this is with coaches who notice this in their quizzers and say, Hey, you need to slow down. You need to throttle back. But I know for a fact, there was a situation where 
P&W was one of those teams where, uh, you know, somebody was tanking and the coaches tried to get them to calm down and could not get the quizzer to be a little bit more balanced. Um, so I totally get it. Like, yeah, ideally you'd want the coach to coach and coach this negative behavior out of the quizzer because it's actually hurting the quizzer and it's hurting the team. So there's already incentives for the coach and the quizzer and the team to actually work on this. But it doesn't actually work all the time, right? And so it's really more a question of in the cases where the incentives aren't enough as they are right now, I don't know that we need to create more incentives, but rather just protect, figure out a way of protecting the other two teams. Interesting. Yeah, I agree with that. And then Luke had a, an unrelated question, which was, I'm also curious to know what you think about increasing the time limit for finish the verses in quotes. Um, so increasing the time limit on those questions to 45 seconds is are by default harder than the other question types um, when it comes to completing the material in the answer. Um, I'm not, because I think that um, the things that make each question type difficult and um, difficult to either inexperienced or very experienced quizzers um, is a really nice range. Um, and I think it gives quizzers lots of choice and flexibility and um, strategic freedom. And I really like it. And I don't I don't see finishes and quotes as being of undue difficulty that that um, they're not being attempted by very many people. Um, and so I don't think that there's any need to go to. 45 seconds on them, I actually would be in favor of allowing finish these three and quote these three, which would be in essentially the opposite of what Luke is um, asking about. Yeah, I'm generally in alignment with you. I mean, right now, what's the hardest question type? You could make the argument. I mean, I could see it a couple of different ways, but I would make the argument that a quote two is the hardest type especially if you've got two verses that are fairly long, right? So if you've got a quote two, there are sometimes, there are some questions that are, you know, quote two questions where if you recite the material at a brisk, but not brutally fast speed, you will get done in like 20 seconds, you know, kind of stuff. So it's one of those things where if you quote it, if you go after a quote two, one of these extra long quote twos, you really don't have an opportunity to quote it a second time. Like you, if you make a mistake, you, you, you probably have time if you notice what the mistake is to fix that one mistake, but you don't have time to do a, a second full rotation. So is that bad? I don't think that is bad, right? Because ultimately at the end, the quizzer has the opportunity to gauge that risk and reward. Now, well, okay, I'll move on to the second point and then after I'm putting a mental pin in, in my head here for a moment, ow, that hurt. A quote two, when it's getting announced, a quizzer knows, okay, this is a quote two. And they can say, they can say to themselves like, okay, what is the calculus here for, do I want to take that added risk of, is it going to be a long quote two, a short quote two? Is it worth me uh, trying to get this question in the, you know, in the 30, uh, 30 seconds allotted or not. And I think that's, that's all valuable because again, it rewards the quizzer that has put in more time, right? Uh, so a quizzer who doesn't, who, who is able to calmly, briskly, but not crazily quote the two verses and get it in in 20, 
five seconds or something word perfect first time through, then they're rewarded for the, 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 the time investment that they've put in to actually be able to answer it that way, right? Um, a quizzer who is making the strategic calculation of, okay, this is a quote two, what's my comfort level? Maybe I slow down just so that I am sure to get the complete reference rather than partial reference or whatever it happens to be. Like there's all these calculations that you're doing. Uh, a lot of it is almost subconscious in a way, right? Uh, uh, as you're making these sort of determinations and the more time you've invested in practice and more time in prep and more time in memorization and more time in review, that's all sort of brought out, uh, uh, in that sort of universe. Now I wouldn't want to have half the questions be quote twos because I want to have a range of difficulties. So again, it's strategic, uh, quizzers, even at the IBQ level can strategically decide where they're going to attack, where they're going to hold back, you know, that kind of stuff, uh, depending upon the, the question question type and so forth. The the flip of side of that is I think quote twos have a much higher risk and are significantly more difficult than say other question types. So should we consider a universe where quote twos are worth 30 points instead of 20? Um, I kind of like that, right? Because now, I mean, does it matter that much at IBQ? Mm, probably not. Um, but at a district level, I think there's some, there's an advantage to say, like, let's, let's give a 30 pointer for a quote two or a, a, a finish this in the next or something. I'm not sure where you would make the cutoff there, but to say like, yeah, some question types, I think there's a there's an argument to be made that they're worth they should be worth 30 points instead of 20. If you're going to go that direction, then you have to ensure that there is a specific number of let's say uh, 30 point questions in a quiz, right? So you don't want to have a range of 30 point uh, questions such that one quiz there's uh, only one 30 point question and another quiz there's like four 30 point questions, right? It would it would need to be the same number of 30 point questions in every quiz um, to ensure that a quiz by quiz is fair across the board. But in that universe, then it's like, okay, well, yeah, if it's a quote two, I only have 30 seconds. They're long quote twos. That's a higher risk. But if I studied more, then I get a higher reward. Um, I think that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, I would some the short notes on my thoughts are the bulk of question types are testing. Can you locate it? Um, but these questions are testing much more than can you locate it? It's how well do you know it? both in amount um, and um, in word perfectness, right? right? And that just makes them different. And I think it makes them different in a very good way. Um, I think quizzing is very appealing because it is a complete choose-your-own-adventure for the quizzer. You get to decide how much to study. You get to decide what question types to jump on. And you get to decide how fast you jump on them. And um, you're you're given all of those um, freedoms and, and you can decide like, what is it that I'm trying to do? Right. Am I trying to maximize quizzing out? Am I trying to minimize airing out? Am I trying to maximize total score? However I get there. Um, Am I trying to help my team win the most? Am I trying to score the most um, and also study the least? Um, These are all things that a quizzer can try to do. And I think that the variety of question types um, and their um, varying difficulties does provide that to the quizzer. I would agree with you that 
on average, a quote these two is the hardest type for the entire distribution of quizzer abilities. Um, but I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of quote twos that aren't that hard. There's a lot of situations that are harder than most of the quote twos, <laughs> but I think in general, right. um, the average quote two is the hardest type for the, um, entire distribution of quizzer abilities. But I think you can see like, um, we, the, Minimums and maximums of multiple answers were reduced significantly. And I can't speak for everyone, but I think part of the desire was the observation that many, many quizzers specialized in those. Because there was both so many in a quiz, they were relatively easy um, because they were both key quickly and included not a whole lot of material. Um, and you could do it without memorizing a large chunk of the material. And so take those things together and then there was a desire to, hey, maybe we have fewer of these so that we reward those things less. Um, and it's it's always kind of, it's going to be a balance. I think maybe it would be better to have more multiple answers than we do now. And as you said, we don't want half the quiz to be quote these two. But I think there is something really nice about having a mix of question types that are difficult for different reasons, Right. Um, because in some quizzes, because of the jumping speed, um, questions like chapter references are really, really, really difficult because they're super vague at quicker jumping speeds. And then there are other quizzes where long situations and quote these two, finish these two are the hardest types because of the sheer amount of material required to get them right. And I think that that's really cool. And quizzers are always trying to figure out, like, should I be jumping more on this type, less on this type, studying more for a certain type, and you're just kind of observing the competitive landscape. And maybe you see, like, hey, a lot of people are scared of quote these two because you only can really quote through them once in your 30 seconds. Um, if you make mistakes, maybe you can only fix something small. But I am confident that I can have an idea which verses will be quote these two, and I can study those verses and gain an advantage because other people um, are um, studying away from them. And I think that's cool. Yeah, totally agreed. I also concur. I think we, uh, and of course I wasn't involved in this, but I think we, as in the, 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 the Royal, we or not the Royal, we, cause that's, that would be only me, the inverse of the Royal, we, the, we, that's not me because I wasn't involved. Um, I think it was done too much. Uh, I think we, we cut multiple answers back too much. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I don't want to see somebody be able to specialize in multiple answers and just utterly dominate because there's so many of them. But I think we've, we've eliminated, we, we've cut multiple answers back so much that there is no value in specializing in multiple answers anymore. And I think there, it was one of those types where having the ability to do a little bit of specialization in multiple answers is a good thing because the nature of the type, I know this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think the nature of the type was wonderful, probably the best type to make lists for. So like list making practices, right? And so if we're, if the idea is we want to encourage quizzers to memorize, which we do, and the idea is quizzers will memorize more, the more creative their study habits happen to be multiple answer specialization with list making or even if you're not you know you know specializing in multiple answers but just making a multiple answer list is a profoundly valuable tool in the pursuit of memorization and i think we've 
done a little bit of a disservice to overall mission when we've cut multiple answers back as as dramatically as we have. And I think another point for multiple answers or another quality that makes them attractive is I would assume that if you had 10 different people write a multiple answer list, you would have more uniformity among those 10 lists than you would have among any other question type. And so if I'm studying for it as a quizzer and writing my own list, I have greater certainty that I have either covered or have a very similar coverage to what will be asked of me. If I'm if I try to make the, a similar list for chapter references or even finish questions, um, I think you have less certainty that you have as similar a list. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, I yeah I, I think I totally agree with that. And that's just like because of the nature of the type. Like, sure, some people are like, ah, I think this is a multiple answer, and other people are like, ah, I don't really think that is. But it's a tiny percentage of the questions, right? And that's more of a conversation right. over is it a valid one or not. Whereas for interrogatives, I might write a thousand valid ones and you write a thousand valid ones and we have 400 that are identical, <laughs> like some incredibly low percentage of, and we've both written completely valid ones. And it's just because there's a lot more leeway there in where you start and where you end. And um, whereas multiple answers, like the nature of how they're defined and the material just dictate what you have to write as a question writer. <laughs> right. Indeed. Indeed. Well, and on that bobshell, I should probably uh, wrap up a little bit here with uh, district championship announcements. So district championships is just a little bit under two weeks away in Pacific Northwest. It is going to be hosted at the Double K Christian Retreat Center in Easton, Washington. This is up in the middle-ish of the Cascade uh, Mountain Range. So it's sort of uh, the Washington State equivalent of Crow's Nest, uh, if you were. Um or if you will, it is going to be uh, Friday, April 29th through Saturday, May 1st. Um, actually, sorry, Sunday, May 1st. Uh, there's the uh, an optional stay uh, overnight, uh, Saturday night, so that we can have uh, Sunday worship and fellowship time uh, together. Uh, probably about half or so of the folks who are attending are planning to stay uh, at the camp Saturday night, which is fantastic. Uh, so the schedule draw and bracket has been published. It's been sent out to, I think, anybody who has a pnwquizzing.org website account. Uh, so if you have not received that email, um, find somebody, probably your coach, uh, who has got that email and they can forward it to you. And if you want to be on the front line of receiving those kind of updates in the future, uh, you can sign up for an account on pnwquizzing.org. And uh, I do want to mention that on Friday, we are going to have three quiz rooms, but on Saturday, very briefly, well, not very briefly, a Saturday morning, we will have four quiz rooms because uh, Seamus uh, from uh, West Can fame and uh, Great West fame will be one of our quiz masters on Saturday. He's going to make the trip down to visit us, uh, probably arriving sometime uh, late on Friday and staying overnight. And so it'll be really awesome for him to join our cadre of quiz masters. So um, 
With that said, please take a moment to invite your friends to come observe quizzing. Uh, if they want to stay overnight, they certainly can. We do have the space available. It does cost a little bit of money, but um, we do have the availability for that. Uh, but even if they just want to show up on Saturday to observe and share, we definitely want to try to use this as an outreach opportunity uh, for quizzing. All right. Um, Scott, any last parting thoughts? I don't think I have any. I, I know I do not have any additional thoughts. All right, cool. Well, and on that bombshell, I will say thank you all for listening. We would love to hear from you. Uh, as we heard from Luke, we love getting emails like that, especially if you disagree with anything that we have been saying, any theories that, that uh, we've been sharing that you take a different point of view on. We would very much like to hear from you. So please email us at iq at cbqz.org. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And if you're on the PNW Quizzing Slack channel, a uh, link uh, to which is on the pnwquizzing.org website, you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time in the Inside Quizzing channel. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening and thank you, Scott. Thanks to all of our listeners and thanks, Griffin. Thanks, Griffin.